0: Welcome to the Authority Hacker podcast. No hype, no BS, no censorship, just real life online marketing tactics. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. My guest today is Randy Michaels, co-founder and trademark attorney at Trust Tree Legal. Welcome to the show, Randy.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Really looking forward to this interview. Trademarks is an increasingly common question that comes up from website owners at at all stages of the business life cycle, in fact. Just before we jump into the interview, though, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us what it is that you do.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm a a trademark lawyer with 18 years of experience. I, I spent the first 14 years of my career at a regional law firm doing primarily intellectual property litigation work. And about, I guess it was about five years ago, myself and a couple other um, minded individuals saw that there was a lot more activity in terms of people going to the internet in order to find legal representation, uh, especially when it comes to trademarks. And so we decided to pursue that and start a law firm that really focuses on helping people that we meet online with their U.S. trademark needs. And we've been doing that for four and a half years. We're one of the top 20 filers of US trademark applications.
0: Yeah. And uh, we, we've actually used you uh, ourselves to do, I think, four or five trademark uh, applications. Now, I found you through a group called the Dynamite Circle. It's like a, a group of online entrepreneurs, about a thousand people in there. And someone else had found you. I can't, can't remember where it was was through but uh, had a great experience, recommended you, and I think this was quite a few other people probably been in touch following that forum thread. So whatever it is you're
1: doing, marketing-wise, seems, seems to be working. Yeah, we sort of have – it's a little bit of a mishmash. As far as lawyers go, we're pretty tech-savvy, but as far as your audience goes, I think we're uh, – You know, maybe just at the beginner stage, but we kind of do a combination of, you know, certainly we get a lot of business through our website, but we're active in various online marketplaces for legal services. And we also do some email marketing as well.
0: Excellent. Uh, So let's sort of dive into things. If we can start by just answering a, a simple question, what is a trademark?
1: Sure. Yeah. A trademark is basically a subset of a brand. I mean, I think everybody knows what a brand is, or at least has a concept, I put it in human terms, you know, if a brand is a person's personality, a trademark would be their signature. In other words, you know, when you see someone's signature, it makes you think of that specific person. And that's really what that's the kind of the concept of a trademark. in, in practice, a trademark kind of falls into a few different categories. You can have words like Nike or amazon.com or authority hacker. You could also have a symbol like the Nike swoosh A slogan can be a trademark like Nike's just do it slogan. You can also use trademarks can also apply to products or packaging design like Hershey Kisses, for example, or Toblerone chocolate is another one.
0: And is there anything that cannot be trademarked? Can you trademark someone's name, for example?
1: The answer is yes and no, uh, like it is with a lot of legal questions in the in the United States, at least you can't get a trademark on a surname the idea is that no one should be allowed to have exclusive rights to the use of a surname, uh, especially, I mean, unless it's one that's com- so rare that there's only maybe a handful of people out there who, who might have that surname, but if it was both names, so like a lot, I'm, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, a lot of country music singers are here. So someone like, I guess Taylor Swift's not country anymore, but she used to be Taylor Swift, uh, Tim McGraw, those types of people, Dolly Parton, they're all going to have trademark registrations for their names. It functions just like any other brand name would. Mm-hmm. And what protection does a trademark afford to to the holder? How does it help you to protect your brand? The thing with, and this is kind of specific to U.S. practice, in the U.S., first of all, trademark registrations are not required. I think that's sometimes a bit of a misconception um, because in a lot of countries they are um in other words if you, you don't have a trademark registration you don't have any trademark rights but but in the United States at least if you're using a trademark in commerce then you do have some sort of rudimentary level of protection you know from a business standpoint you know a trademark is there to differentiate you from other competitors as far as what your the trademark law is designed to do is designed to prevent consumer confusion so essentially what the government wants What our legal system wants is everybody to stay in their own lane. You know, they want everyone, consumers to be able to differentiate between different businesses based on the trademarks that they use. And that doesn't always happen. And sometimes infringement situations can arise. And when they do, that's where the power of a trademark registration really kicks in. Um, So like in the United States, you have a trademark registration. It gives you the right to use the registration symbol, which is that R in the circle, uh, it gives you nationwide priority. Even though, let's say you're here in Nashville and you open up a donut shop, if you have a trademark registration, that would allow you to prevent anyone else in anywhere in the country from opening up a donut shop with a similar name, or at least it would give you rights to pursue them in the event that they did. Uh, otherwise, uh, if you had to just rely on your unregistered rights, and you, you know, if I was Randy's Donuts here in Nashville, someone could open up Randy's Donuts in in San Francisco and there, I wouldn't really have any basis in order to challenge that use. Here in the U.S., a trademark registration gives you the ability to sue in federal court. You can recover domain names, social media usernames. You can stop counterfeits because trademark registrations can be recorded with uh, Customs and Border Protection, so you can stop counterfeits from coming in at the borders. And then for people who are active in the e-commerce area, you need a trademark registration in order to be like on the Amazon brand registry and other online marketplaces, similar types of programs.
0: Yeah, that's something we actually have personal experience of quite recent, recently, the uh, the social media side of things. So we had uh, someone else who had registered the Twitter username Authority Hacker long before we even started, and they had, they'd let it drop a few years back. And someone else, a, a second person had picked it up. And we're trying to impersonate us and basically sell us the, the domain, sell us the, the Twitter handle for several thousand dollars, I think. And Twitter wouldn't even entertain any questions or any kind of support issues from us unless we had the proper trademark registration. So having that allowed us to speak to them and they, they took it seriously and we eventually got the, uh, the Twitter handle from them. So I can, I can speak from personal experience that the system works. Um, I don't think we would have been able to do that without it, really.
1: Right. If you ever looked at any of the various, like either social networks or um, e-commerce sites, if if you ever find yourself in a situation where you've got to fill out an intellectual property infringement complaint form, that's one of the first fields that will be in there is they'll want to know the registration number.
0: And you talked about people selling on Amazon. Uh, can you go into a little bit more detail about why it's extra important for 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 those people to to have trademarks registered?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, I don't sell on Amazon. I guess I should put that caveat out there. So so my understanding of the brand registry is, is, is somewhat limited, but I know that there is enhanced brand content that's available to to sellers. On the Amazon platform, that you cannot have access to unless you have a registered trademark that, and you've applied for the brand registry and gotten onto the brand registry. There's also a number of tools available to sellers to combat counterfeits, which is obviously a pretty big problem on that platform. So, you know, in, in other words, it's really <laughs> the only way to, to to really efficiently do business. I think on on those types of websites is to have a trademark registration and and, and to be a part of the brand registry.
0: Yeah, I think my understanding at least of, of Amazon is that a lot of suppliers who are producing goods are actually having them manufactured in China and the factories that are producing those goods are selling those same products to to many people. So it's it's fairly easy, I think, for other companies to come in and, and start selling the same goods or same products as you if they see on Amazon that you're doing well. So I think that's per- maybe where the, uh, the kind of protection angle comes from um, at least okay so at what point in a business life cycle should you start thinking about this i mean is it something you need to worry about on day one when you're first coming up with your business idea or do you need to wait until you reach you know x amount of scale before this really becomes a, a big issue for you
1: it's probably going to be one of the first things that comes up only because the business has to have a name. <laughs> you have to have a name, your products and services that you provide have to have names as well. I mean, those names usually can function as trademarks depending on the, the types of names that you're using. I mean, if you were just going to be, you know, the website company, for example, something like that has no trademark value to it. But if you were thinking about coming up with a more distinctive name, then there's a pretty good chance that there's a... Um, it would have some trademark significance to, to what you're doing. When it comes to the trademarks themselves, from the legal side, there, there's a spectrum of, of trademark distinctiveness. In other words, trademarks are, are sort of measured on a scale from strongest to weakest to incapable of functioning as a trademark. And so when you're going through that process and if, or if you're trying to figure out where you fall on that scale, Generally speaking, the big categories are in the strongest trademarks are what are called fanciful trademarks. So something like Hagen dazs or Exxon or what one of my partners calls evil robot names. Those are considered the strongest trademarks. They're made up words and they're entitled to the broadest scope of trademark protection. And then b- one rung below that on the, on the spectrum, you have arbitrary trademarks. That would be like Apple for computers or Camel for cigarettes. Then you have what are called suggestive trademarks, and that would be like copper tone for sunscreen or Greyhound for buses. All three of those categories of trademarks um, in the United States and pretty much any other jurisdiction would be capable of having some form of trademark protection attached to them, either in an unregistered way or as a registered trademark. Then when you kind of, you get below that, it starts getting into areas where you might not be able to protect your name as a trademark. One of them being descriptive trademarks. Um, that would be literally something that just describes what it is that you do. You know, If you are the website building company, you, pr- you build websites, then that would be a descriptive trademark. And the trademark office, at least in the U.S., is not going to allow anyone to have exclusive rights to the use of that name. You can still get on, there's a secondary register um, that would still get you a trademark registration. I want to allow you to, there's a, you have the ability to acquire enough distinctiveness in a descriptive trademark over time that you might be able to, to eventually get a trademark registration, but at least for the time being, it would be considered descriptive. And then below that is generic names. And I think most people understand what that is, but you know, that would be like smartphone, social network website, it describes what it is. Nobody, No one can have exclusive rights to, to those words. And so anyways, to get back to your original question, the point is, is that most people probably already have a name that they've either in mind on um, that they've already developed. And based on kind of where it falls within that spectrum, they might have something that can be protected by a trademark registration, or, or maybe it can't be. And so it's good to be thinking about that at an, at an early stage, uh, just because it's one of those things that the earlier you can get that sorted out, the better position you'll be in the long run. Just because trademark registrations can take a long time to secure, so you you know you could it could take you a year or two in order to get your trademark registration. So the sooner you start the process, the better. You also want to know at an early stage too. Sort of the second, I guess, part and this might be where you're going once you realize you have a trademark to, to figure out if like you're, if something that can be registered as a trademark, number one, but number two, whether you, there's any potential conflicts with, with anybody else, um, just because that's another thing for a startup a business that you want to know sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah. Anyone who's tried to uh, uh, buy a, a unique cool sounding domain.com domain name recently has probably run into to that issue. with with coming up with a name so it's i guess it's another layer to the whole name planning setup Uh, one of my friends actually he was setting up a water filtration company came up with a really good name but then and the dot-com was available but then turns out the trademark was owned by a drug company in the in the u.s for something so it was kind of a, a bit of a red flag there quite quite early on so definitely something to uh to pay attention to i think So you mentioned about Amazon.com and Apple, the word Amazon and the word Apple, they're words that are just sort of in the dictionary. How do they come to be trademarks? Is it through continued usage? I mean, can I pick up a a dictionary word that's not used and and use that as
1: a trademark? Yes, if it's an arbitrary usage, you know, so it, it all depends on context. People ask that all the time because they think, well, you know, it's in the dictionary, so it should be available for anyone. And and the answer is, it could be. If you sell apples, you know, you can use the word apple. That's a generic use of that word, and there are no trademark rights in it. And Apple Computer can't stop you from doing that. But if it's Apple for computers, then you've got a problem. Although, and this is sort of. Probably more detail than you really want, but there is a sort of an additional layer of protection for famous trademarks um, in the United States, at least. And so companies like Apple can often, they can contest anybody's ability to use the word Apple as a trademark for anything. So like, for example, you know, if you were to use the word Big Apple in connection with a real estate company um, that sold, you know, that operated in in New York City, Apple is going to contest that because they're going to argue that even though there's really no opportunity for consumer confusion there, because there's no, um, they're not competitive services. Apple doesn't provide real estate services, but there is a concept called trademark dilution. And so they can still challenge the use of the mark based on the fact that they believe it dilutes the value of their brand. This is something that was, is only available to a very limited number of famous brands Apple is probably the most notorious in terms of enforcement. But, you know, Google, Disney, anyone like that. So (laughs) do not try. If you're thinking about starting up uh, a business, do not incorporate. If, If you have heard of the name before used as a brand name, it's a pretty good idea not to not to use that, even if it's for something that's completely different.
0: This is also important because I, I see a lot of websites who, particularly do who do reviews on a certain category of products, maybe like uh, iPhoneReviews dot or something like that. I, I presume Apple has the 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 phrase iPhone trademarks as well, but that's probably a big no no in terms of you, you're likely to attract attention of big scary legal teams for if you if you set up a, a business with someone else's trademark, uh, uh, not exclusively, but as part of the your your name.
1: Yes, you absolutely will. Apple has a number of very well-paid lawyers who basically work for them full-time doing enforcement work. And it's not only just lawyers either. You know, there's a lot of tools that um, the lawyers use in order to identify infringement. Um, Another thing commonly used in the industry are private detectives. And so um, what can often happen is that uh, someone thinks that they're dealing with someone who's interested in learning more about their business. But really, what they're who they're really hearing from is a private detective who's been hired by that big brand in order to investigate their use of the trademark and is looking for any angle that they can think of in order to uh, you know to back you into a corner. So it's just one of those things that there's a lot of risk that you assume. You know, if you were to to incorporate a a well known company's trademarks into your business name or any of the products or services that you're selling.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and one other thing I wanted to, to mention as well is that Empire Flippers, who are one of the largest website brokerage firms in, in our industry, they, they're sort of a marketplace for buying and selling websites. They actually have a specific field in their listings, whether you have a, a trademark or not. So that leads me to assume that buyers especially will, will value a business which has a trademark higher than, than, than not, I guess.
1: Sure. No, absolutely. You know, I mean, the, those are those that kind of gets into some of the other reasons why trademark registrations are important. And they're things that aren't necessarily specific to, you know, the your um, to to the law. But there's there's certain number one, there's just a perception that having a trademark registration has uh, has more value to it. So if you're building a business that you might be looking to sell to somebody else, um, the bus- business owners are going to look into your intellectual property assets as part of the due diligence process. And if they see trademark registrations, they're number one, they're going to be pleased to know that the, that diligence was, was done on um, that shows that you're a careful, responsible business owner, but they also will value those trademarks at, at a higher, at a higher value than they otherwise might be. I mean, and, and if you, you know, this is, these, these numbers are old and this is a crazy example, but trademarks are an, an embodiment of, um, they can be valued. There's, there's a concept called goodwill. And mm-hmm. when you, when you look at a balance sheet, goodwill corresponds to essentially to trademarks. And for some businesses, you know, it, it's basically, if you were to the value of a business over and above, you know, beyond sort of like it's hard assets. So some, I mean, this is a, a few years old, but you know, the Goodwill and the Google trademark was calculated to be worth over $40 billion. It was like 25, 27% of the value of the entire company. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's very significant. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's obviously an outlier, you know, as far as examples go, but it gives people an idea, you know, that there's something more to it than just, uh, you know, having the ability to recover a, a Twitter, you know, username if necessary.
0: So, how does one actually go about registering a, a trademark? Is there a search engine someone can go on and, and see what's taken, what's available, and, and where do they go from
1: there? Sure. So, you know, in the in, there's a couple different places. There, the, the first thing to do is is to run a trademark search, um, and this doesn't. You don't need to break the bank to do it because there are some free options out there available for people. If you if it's a U.S. trademark application that you're interested in filing, then you can go to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website. It's uspto.gov. The website's a little clunky, and so is the search engine, but you, at least you can kind of run some some quick searches just to see if there, anything pops up. It's what we... T- trademark searches are classified kind of in two different ways, and there, there's one that's it's a preliminary or a knockout search, and that's what that's designed to do is to spot obvious conflicts. And then you have the the second type of search is is a full search or a comprehensive search, and that's really for if you need to know everything there is to know about about a particular trademark, that's what you would uh, want to be interested in doing after you ran a um, a preliminary search yourself. And for most people, running that preliminary search is really all they need to do, you know. And if they are um, at least if they're based in the United States. They can go proceed and file a trademark application themselves on the USPTO website. Um, If they are located outside the United States, the law or the rules have recently changed. And so that you are required now to have US legal representation. If you're based outside the US, uh, you can't file your own trademark applications anymore. So the Chinese trademark, yeah, the Chinese trademark mills basically broke that for everybody. So it was becoming a huge problem. In the US, where all of these uh, Chinese trademark applications were being filed by Chinese nationals for things that really weren't ever being used. They were using, <laughs> faking a lot of the information that was, you know, relating to the goods and services. And, you know, as I understand it, there was actually even the government in China was sort of subsidizing this effort. And the trademark office just ran into kind of said enough is enough. So if you're located outside the US now, there's a bunch of warning messages you'll see on the USPTO website. That means that um, that will say that you need to have a US uh, trademark lawyer representing you. So um, that's where people like me step in or, or others. Pro, pro, I was going to um,
0: say probably a good time to drop your website. What
1: is it? Trusttree trademarks.com. Yeah, it, right. It is. It's trusttree trademarks.com, which is there's, <laughs> there's a pretty lengthy and a lot of alliteration, but the shorter one is, is trust-tree.com and that redirects to my, to my website as well. But If you're outside the U.S., and I just mentioned this real quick, like in the EU, the EU EU IPO, European Union Intellectual Property Office, has a much more user-friendly website, has a better search engine. So it's a little easier for people to navigate um, than what we have here in the the U.S. And then in pretty much most other countries, they're going to have, whatever the country's trademark office have, will have some sort of search engine capability.
0: So, I mean, my website, Authority Hacker, it's been going for, what, five or five or six years, something like that now. And in that time, we've had visitors from, I don't know, maybe 180 plus countries. Uh, surely we don't need to fire, file trademarks in, in all of those countries or, or search for, it's not really practical to search for trademarks in all of those countries. Is it So sort of prudent just to focus on the US or Europe or is there, is there any kind of structured approach we should take to this?
1: Yeah, I think number one, just starting in the jurisdiction where you're located, where your office is, based, is is located, is the place to to begin. Certainly, if there are other markets that are important to your business, so like here in the US, it's pretty common for people to file trademark applications in Canada and in Mexico, also China in the EU as well. You know, those are sort of the big jurisdictions for, for US filers, at least and so the, those would be the places you would look. It does get to a point where, it, well, the searching can still be done for free. So there's there's really no excuse other than time um, in order to not at least try to navigate the various government trademark office websites just to see if there's an issue in, in one of those countries. But if you're certain, like my law firm, for example, we have the ability to to run a more comprehensive search covering over hundred jurisdictions if necessary. Um, So if you, if you really wanted a lot more information covering a lot more countries, that's something that can be done for probably just a few hundred dollars. Um, It gives you more information, but yes. Yeah. I mean, I think searching is one thing. Filing is another, you know, you, you, you will have each, when you start adding up all the government fees and potential lawyer fees, it would become quite an expensive endeavor. If you were trying to protect yourself in every jurisdiction and so, w- rule of thumb, I, I I do this, and I'm scaring people a little bit, but if you were to ask me how much it's going to cost to file your trademark application in each other country, I would tell people between a thousand dollars and fifteen hundred dollars per country. So you know, if you were to start to doing the math on that, you probably would relatively quickly decide that maybe just one or two jurisdictions is all you need
0: yeah yeah for sure and, and once you've kind of understood that the trademark is available and let's say you're you're based in the u.s so you you can file it your yourself you decide to go that way um, or actually if you're based like in the uk like we are and use a professional such as yourself what does the actual process of applying look like what documentation what do you need to supply in the application to get it through
1: when i Prepare a trademark application for people. Um, you know, first of all, a lot of the information, it I think, is pretty obvious that you would think of, you know, who's going to own the trademark, whether if you have a business that's established or if it's going to be a person or persons um, can also own trademarks. And a lot of times people ask me, well, I'm, you know, I'm a UK business. Can I own a US trademark registration? And yes, the answer is yes. Um, there's, there's no problems there. So we need to know who's going to own the trademark. We obviously know what the trademark is at that point, because we will have done a search on it. We know what the goods and services are for the trademark. And then the next big question is really whether or not the trademark is in use in commerce. And that's sort of a legal terminology here um, in the United States. Use in commerce corresponds to basically if you if you sell goods, it would be that you have sold goods under the trademark in the United States. If it's services that you provide, then it would be that you've provided services to U S customers or consumers. Services are a little easier because you don't actually, no money has to change hands or anything like that. So, you know, in, in your case, for example, if you're providing podcasting services, for example, All you need to know is that you've got some U.S. listeners, you know, and that would satisfy that use in commerce requirement. So if you have use in commerce, then we have to provide the trademark office with an acceptable example of use. So in the case of like a podcast, for example, we're going to we would submit a, a website screenshot of the homepage, the website that would show the trademark and describe the podcast maybe have some links on there to podcast episodes that people could use in order to access the podcast. And then the next thing, the other piece of information, the trademark office wants to know is the date of first use in commerce. So they, in other words, they want to know like when was the first time that a U.S. consumer was maybe in the case of podcasting listened to a, a podcast. And this isn't necessarily an exact science. It's a, it's, it's called an as early as date. So it's really just a matter of providing the date that, you know, like you just know hundred percent, like I know by this point people were actually listening to the podcast.
0: Yeah. So, so you don't, just to be clear, you don't have to actually have sold a product. You can just have a listener or an audience, some some kind of audience. Yes.
1: Yeah. So this is where, so that, Essentially, trademarks apply to either goods and services. And the governments of the world have categorized and classified uh, goods and services into 45 different classes. So the classes 1 through 34 correspond to goods, and classes 35 through 45 are for services. So if you're you know, like podcasting or providing consulting services, or you're doing software design and development, those are all considered services. If you are an Amazon seller and you sell lunch boxes you know those are goods so if
0: i have a, a blog and i write some content on that blog is the is that piece of content the the service or is it the advertising revenue i make off of that
1: no it's the blog itself is the content that you're providing people it's considered it's classified in the same class as educational services so you're you know you're educating people you know maybe some more than others Uh, but it is considered an educational service that's being provided. So when it comes to services, no money needs to change hands. You don't, again, you don't have to have made any sales. You just need to know actually like for a blog, you you need to have a blog and we need to be able to submit website screenshots and provide a date by which, you know, someone in the U S probably accessed one of your posts. So that's would be for services for goods. You're going to, if it's like an Amazon seller, we're going to do a website screenshot of the Amazon listing. And then that, you know, shows the trademark and describes the goods and it has the shopping cart, you know, on there. So the trademark office knows that people can actually buy it. And then also the date, you know, that corresponds to sort of like the first sale to, to a U.S. customer. So... So kind of getting back to it, you know, it, it, if you can if you can sat, meet those criteria then the application can be filed on an actual use basis. If you can't meet that criteria, the application has to be filed on an intent to use basis and that's essentially buying yourself 6 to 12 months in order to gather up the information that you need in order to to claim actual use or or to launch the business or the website or whatever whatever it is you need to do. At that point, the application is, is ready to go. You know, in the case of my clients, I, I prepare it. I send it to them to electronically review. If, it, if they approve it, they'll sign it. Then we file it. And at that point, we wait. Um, and it takes about four months for the application to be assigned to an examining attorney at the trademark office who's going to review it for compliance with various rules and regulations. The number one thing they're going to be looking for are conflicts with prior registrations and applications. And that's why we search you know, is to try to anticipate what it is that they might find when they run that search. So if we've done our job correctly, <laughs> or, you know, hopefully that search doesn't reveal any conflicts.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this is where, where the value in having a, an attorney represent you really, really comes into its own because it's very easy to, to miss similar trademarks if you're just looking, looking through it your, yourself in the search.
1: Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, in, is, trademark searching is different than like domain name searching. So a domain name is either available or it's not. When it comes to, it's basically whether or not there's an identical conflict is, is all that really matters. When it comes to trademarks, trademarks are compared for similarities in appearance, sound and meaning. In other words, you could have a trademark that, let's say, quick and, and quick, one spelled with a K and one spelled with a Q. You know, there's a minor difference there in appearance because of the different letters, but they both sound and they mean the same thing. So the trademark office would consider them to be equivalents. And that's why it can be hard when you're doing um, trademark searching in order to identify all the potential conflicts out there, because you might not be able to think of them. The spelling variations or abbreviations are another one or phonetic equivalents, like C-S-E-A versus C-S-E-E versus the letter C. It can also be translations are another, another issue. You know, bonjour in French, you know, hello in English mean the same thing. And the trademark office, again, would consider them to be equivalents. You might not be able to anticipate all of those things. And so that's another good reason to get a trademark lawyer involved because we have access to tools that are able to anticipate all of those different variations and, and, and provide a, a more clear understanding of your ability to register, register the trademark.
0: And then, does, do they ever come back and, and sort of say, no, you, you can't have this trademark? Or do they generally approve most of them? They
1: usually find something wrong. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, the conspiracy theorist, you know, in me says that's because they have sort of a – they're kind of incentivized, I think, to, to find issues, to issue spot, to issue what are called office actions, uh, which are – it's a fancy word for letters – in which they, they identify problems. Usually, though, the, the, they're minor issues. So, for example, a very common one is that they might not like the way that the goods and services are described. And this doesn't come up in the context of applications that I file, but this does come up in the context of ones that I get hired to help people with. So like sometimes someone will inadvertently include someone else's trademark registration within the description of goods. Like, for example, they might, they might mention PowerPoint presentations. and PowerPoint is a registered trademark. You're not allowed to have a description that includes a registered trademark in there. So the, the trade it's a minor issue. The application will be approved, but we just have to amend the identification in order to swap out something like electronic presentation or some other sort of um, way of conveying the same idea. Another one is that the trademark office, might require what's called a disclaimer of rights to a term. So sometimes people will file for a trademark that includes the word company in it, but it might also have a you know a distinctive component as well, but it also has the word company in it. The trademark office is going to require a disclaimer of exclusive rights to, in the use of the word company. In other words, you know, you nobody can everybody, this is free for everybody to use. And so you have to enter this disclaimer. It's a pretty minor issue, but it does need to be fixed before the trademark office will ap- approve the application for what's called publication. So, you know, I guess to kind of go back over where we were in the process, you know, we file the application, it's reviewed four months after filing for compliance with these rules and regulations. Hopefully, at that point, it's approved for what's called publication. And if it is approved for publication, then it goes through an opposition period, and this is this is typical process for, for any application process throughout the world. But you know, at least in the U.S., we have a thirty day opposition window. So, um, anyone who believes they would be damaged by registration of the trademark can oppose that application, and it's rarely done, just because it's uh, most people aren't paying attention, and it's, it's typically something that is done. By trademark lawyers for their clients, so sort of an, another you know plug for the trademark lawyers out there is that we can we can do trademark monitoring, so we can help our clients identify the filing of a new application that's similar to one that they uh, have previously filed for, and so to let them know that they have the opportunity to oppose the application if they want.
0: Did, do you guys have like software that like monitors keywords for that, or how is that actually done?
1: We do, yeah. So the same platform that we use to search trademarks is the same platform that we use to monitor.
0: Is it something you've created yourself, or is it like a some kind of open source platform that that all attorneys get access to?
1: No, it, yeah, it's a third party tool. So there's there's a few different companies that provide trademark searching services. There's kind of two gold standards, so to speak. Uh, the one company is called now now called CompiMark. Um, and the other one is called Core Search, and those are the the kind of the two biggest players in this space. And then we use a company called Trademark Now. and they're sort of the smaller kind of more, i guess disruptive player in this industry, and they're using artificial intelligence technology, which the other companies aren't aren't using at this point, but it it provides for what we believe is uh, is a more accurate search and certainly a lot more quicker. Um, you know, so again, we're, we are lawyers and so we're not, um, we're not necessarily the most technical savvy people in the world. And, um, but we are of the belief that computers generally are pretty good at doing certain things. Um, and this is one of those things that we believe computers are better at doing than, than people are. So what happens once
0: the the trademark gets approved after like it goes through that, there's no objections. What happens then?
1: So if it gets through the opposition period and there's no oppositions, then if you have filed your application based on actual use, then you will receive your trademark registration. And the fastest this ever happens is six months. Um, I think eight months is probably a little bit more typical. But in other words, if the fastest that you're ever going to get a US trademark registration is going to be like six to eight months, and that would be for an actual use application that has no issues with it at the examination stage and no oppositions. If the application was filed on an intent-to-use basis, instead of a registration, you receive what's called a notice of allowance. And when you receive the notice of allowance, you then have six months in order to prove to the trademark office that you're using the trademark in connection with the applied for goods and services in order to complete the registration process. So that proof of use that I was talking about earlier that you submit with your application for an actual use application. This is the time for the intent to use application that you need to submit that proof of use. And there are additional fees associated with that. So, you know, it it does make the intent to use process a little bit more expensive, but, you know, for some people it's worth it in order to get that early feedback, you know, about what they're doing, that there's no conflicts. And most people are able to make a decision about whether or not they want to you know, complete the registration process within that window. If you find yourself at the end of that window and you still are either haven't made use of the mark yet um, and you want to maintain the application, then you can file the first of up to five six month extensions of time. Um, so for some people, you know, maybe they just got a little bit ahead of themselves and they they still need more time. In order to get that proof of use going, but they want to keep the application going and, and so they can file extensions. And there's also fees associated with those extensions as well. But good news is that you could keep that application out there, maintain it for you know, two and a half years while you continue to work on your business.
0: And once you have the trademark, that is the point when you're allowed to use the R symbol. Is that, is that right? And what's the right. difference between the R, the C, and the TM? Because I've seen all those use.
1: Right. The R is the registration symbol for trademarks. The TM is the unregistered trademark symbol. So anyone out there who doesn't have a registered trademark, you can use a TM you know, there's no restrictions on the use of that. And it's a good thing to do because it lets the world know that you're claiming trademark rights in this. Um, it's just that you haven't registered them.
0: So, so if I'm a website who's been going for, you know, six months, I've, I've never even looked at a trademark before, but I'm, I listen to this podcast and I think, oh, maybe I'm going to register my trademark at some point. A good first step is to actually go and put that TM next to your, where on your, next to your logo, next to your brand name on your website or in your footer?
1: Well, yeah, you want to put it somewhere that's prominent enough that people will come into your website, will see it. You know, the whole purpose is it serves a notice function. It doesn't need to be everywhere. And some people, you know, they ask me, they think that they're, you know, like, I don't want to use it, because I don't want to have to put it everywhere, because it will look ridiculous, you know, but you know, you don't have to do that. But most commonly, you'll see it on a website in the header, maybe depending on whether or not the person's using a logo, you know, if they, if it's just the name of, uh, if it's just words, you know, just put a little TM, you know, in superscript, you know, to the right of of the word, if it's a logo, you could put the TM next to the logo. Mm -hmm. There's really no uh, right or wrong. It's just a matter of, of associating the TM close enough to the trademark in some place that, that in enough prominent places that people are going to see it, or at least they don't have any excuse not to see it.
0: If you do this with the the unregistered tra- trademark the the TM am I right in thinking you you can't prevent other people from misusing it but you can stop
1: people from registering it is that right sort of you know it, it again in in the US you have these unregistered trademark rights and so which is the concepts have become more blurry in the era that we live in now you know with the internet because it, it, again it used to be that you're operating a little store in your town using a TM next to your store name prevented anyone. Well, didn't prevent, I mean, someone else in your same town could open up a similar store using a similar name and you would have the ability um, to pursue legal recourse against them. You know, you could send them a cease and desist letter because they're in your town and you're concerned about consumers being confused, but you know, where the limits of those rights are to, are, are to your geographic area. So someone in another town catering to a different customer base doesn't need to, they don't, there's no likelihood of confusion among consumers, you know, but now with the internet, you know, arguably you can say that unregistered trademarks um, maybe have broader uh, scope of protection than they they used to. I think that's uh, probably subject to debate. And and I think ultimately really just depends on um, the players involved, you know, because that, Um, When it comes to cease and desist letters, I feel like, and I send out a fair amount of them, you know, my preference is always to have that trademark registration that I can attach to that letter. It just gives it that much more weight. Um, People understand that there's a problem, but sometimes you don't have it. So you have to, you know, let them know that you have an unregistered trademark and you're still claiming rights and you still have rights in order to enforce it. And people who, recipients of those letters, If they're uh, acting uh, responsibly and in good faith, they usually don't question that, you know, and they'll just want to figure out a way to, to resolve the situation. But, you know, if you are a um, intentionally getting yourself as close to other people as possible, maybe wearing sort of a little bit of a a black hat, um, then you're probably going to ignore that letter or you're going to fire back and be like, no trademark registration. So, you know. Good luck. You know, we're not doing it. We're not changing. So in,
0: in what situations would you send a, a cease and desist letter to, let's say another website?
1: Yeah. I mean, the number one thing is, is if you, there's any actual confusion. I mean, someone comes to you thinking that you're the other people and you know, the website, I mean there, that could come up in any number of ways. I mean, certainly in kind of like the brick and mortar world, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, people come to your store and they've got a coupon that was provided by a different store and they want to use it at your store. And you're like, that's not me. That's the other person. That's sort of actual confusion right there. But it, it happens. You see it a lot of times in online reviews, you know, someone will have a terrible experience with some maybe e-commerce site and, and they just let them have it, you know, on uh, Google reviews or what have you. And then <laughs> the trademark, the website owner is like, that wasn't me. You know, like, I don't even know what you're talking about that's another example, you know, where consumers are confused. So that's definitely the biggest red flag. So if there's actual confusion out there, then you would be well within your rights to tell the other person to cease and desist. If that hasn't happened yet, but you just feel based on experience that it's still too close, then if it bothers you, basically, that's what I tell people. If it bothers you, you know, and, and of course, you know, I'm assuming that based on my sort of legal review that they do have, there's some merit to their position, then I would say see them and see some desist letter. You know, sometimes they, they get ignored a lot. Mostly they're usually complied with. And what happens if someone ignores such a letter? It usually ends up getting a a series of more strongly worded letters. You know, it's a letter writing campaign um, that I think every lawyer, if it is a lawyer handling it, has kind of their own way of operating. But um, the gist of it being that ignoring this is not going to make it go away. And, you know, you can usually wear them down over time if they don't. And if they're not going to comply, if they won't respond, then you know, your options are, I mean, you do have some options. I mean, you can always sue them, which is sort of the nuclear option. And it's not necessarily the next first step that I would advise people to do, but it is there. Um, there's incremental measures that can be done. So like on the social media website. So for example, you know, I've had them where the person wouldn't comply. So then, you know, we filed the complaint with Facebook, you know, or we filed a complaint with Amazon and you started escalating the pressure that way. When all of a sudden their product listing gets taken down, you know that can usually that usually will get their attention and they'll, they'll want to work something out. You know the other way is if it's a domain name that's the infringing issue, then you do have the ability to initiate what's called a UDRP proceeding and Uniform Domain Name Resolution Procedure Policy. I'm, I'm probably missing the uh, all all the letters there, but essentially it's like a, a streamlined lawsuit. Um, that can be initiated against the owner of, of an infringing domain name, and then also within the trademark context, you can also if there's a registration, for example, involved, um, and this does happen sometimes, whereby someone will get a trademark registration for something that your client or you know, or you know, like is my client has prior rights in, and they want that registration canceled or they want them to surrender it. Um, and if they won't do it, then we can petition to cancel the registration at the trademark office. Or if it's a pending application, we can oppose it. There's like the UDRP proceeding, there's sort of half steps towards litigation. It's a little bit like litigation.
0: These are like lower cost kind of fast options that, that don't involve, you know, six months of casework or something like no, that.
1: Well, a lot more than that. I mean, the US, you know, if you were to get involved in a trademark infringement lawsuit, you know, if it was... I mean, again, most of them get settled and resolved early on. Um, but for the ones that don't, if they have to go to trial, I mean, you're looking at probably two years of your life and several hundred thousand dollars in attorney's fees. Wow! Um, so it, it's not for the faint of heart. It has to be something that is critical, you know, to the health of your business. That U- you UDRP, on the other hand, costs how much? To so the the filing fee depends on the number of uh, the sort of the size of the panel that you're requesting. I don't have the numbers up in front of me, but I think if you if you just need a single panelist to adjudicate the issue, then you you know it's like it's a little over a thousand dollars, and you know I think it's a few, it's I think it's a few thousand dollars if you want a panel of of three people to look at the issue, and then there's going to be time involved with it a little bit um, in terms of preparing. It. And if you hire an attorney to do it for you, then there's going to be additional fees with that. But you know, all in, it can be done for. You know, let's say less than five thousand dollars. Excellent. So,
0: is there anything else which I, I haven't asked you about the the trademark process, which you you feel particularly website owners should be aware of or, or should know?
1: You know, I, I think that when it comes to the it, it's sort of the website world, the internet world, the the same laws that apply to regular old brick and mortar. Um, disputes are this are also ones that apply to to the internet, you know. And I think there, it's not like there's any real special treatment um, that you get just because you're operating a website. And also you, the the concepts of what's confusingly similar might be a little bit broader than what my people might think of, just because you might be an e-commerce seller of a sort of like an obscure product, and you might run into a dispute with a large brick and mortar retailer, you know, who maybe sells this among thousands of other things within their stores and they believe that there's some some likelihood of confusion there. So so the point is is that I mean the risk of that happening is is small, but, you know, I, I guess you should still do your research, you know, in other words, is the bottom line, you know, just because you're, you're operating your website, or you're selling some, you know, kind of some obscure things on Amazon, and doesn't mean that you're immune from some of the same problems that can arise for, you know, just regular brick and mortar type businesses. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, great. So do you want to, well, we already mentioned it, but uh, Trust Tree Trademarks.com right. was the, yeah, uh, I, I love the alliteration in there. It's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know you have to talk, my, my partner, Bill, he, he feels very strongly about it. This is like, he, he, he's kind of the, he's a former engineer. And so, and really for that only reason, he, he's the one who was sort of in charge of our website. So if you ever go and you see, you'll notice there's a lot of puppies on our website. Um, all of that is my buddy, Bill. Um, and you can uh, congratulate him on it. He feels the website's his baby, but it's TrustTreeTrademarks.com. Shorter version is Trust-Tree.com that redirects to our website. Um, you can also reach me by email. You know, if you have any questions, you know, or, you know we don't, I, I, <laughs> you're not going to get charged <laughs> for a free consultation. So it's uh, my email address is Randy, R-A-N-D-Y at Trust, T-R-U-S-T-T-R-E-E.com.
0: Yeah. And we'll, we'll put all those details, links to your website and, and whatnot in the, the show notes of this podcast as well. Well, Brandy, thank you very much for coming on today. really appreciate your time.
1: Great. No, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, feel free to let me know if you have any other questions.
0: Thanks. And thanks for tuning in today. Uh, always appreciate it. Gail and I will be back next week with another episode on Monday. So hope to see you there.